Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Today, I'm joined by author David J. Goodwin, who is also the assistant director at Fordham University's Center on Religion and Culture. He's written the book Left Bank of the Hudson, Jersey City and the Artist of 111 First Street. It tells the story of a former New Jersey warehouse turned artist colony and the battle over art and development. Good morning, David. Good morning, Robin. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming in. Um, so let's start. How did you learn about 111 First Street? Oh, that's an interesting anecdote. So when I moved to Jersey City in early 2005, I saw the building being torn down. And I didn't know anything about the building. It, it was, I learned, a former tobacco warehouse uh, for the P. Lorillard Tobacco Company, which there is a connection to the Bronx and the area right around Fordham University where we're talking today. And maybe we'll get into that. But, and I was just wondering, why is this architecturally interesting building being torn down when it could be repurposed, it could be rehabilitated into apartments or offices? And later I learned that it was the home of an arts community, the community at 111 First Street. And I did more research and learned that there was a community there for roughly 20 years from the late 80s to the early 2000s. And when I was a graduate student here at Fordham University, I wrote an aside about this community in a a paper in a master's class. And my professor at the time said, I think there's a larger story here. And... I worked on this project for several years, and I realized, well, I realized when I began researching it that I I thought that there was a large story there that could possibly become a book. And I spent the next five years interviewing people, researching at different libraries, reading, thinking about cities, thinking about Jersey City, and then I approached Fordham University Press with this book proposal. They liked it, and now there is a Full, fully fledged book, <laughs> and I do want to get to the interviews because you had some yes. pretty interesting interviews. Oh, but, thank you. Uh, first, one eleven First Street was for almost a century, as you said, a tobacco mm-hmm. company in Jersey City. But the company didn't start in New Jersey. So tell me about the company's history and the family that owned it. So the history, of the company is fascinating in its own right, and I think could be its own uh, book or story. It started in the Wall Street area, right before the Revolutionary War by a family with the name Lorillard, and they immigrated at an undetermined date from France. They were Huguenots, so French Protestants. They were being persecuted in France, immigrated to the United States, so a very American story, formed a business. During the American Revolution, the founder of the company, Pierre Lorillard, was killed in a jailbreak. And there's some debate whether he was killed by the prisoners, was he killed by British soldiers, but the family always promoted this, maybe the fable or the myth that he was killed for being an ardent patriot. Whether that is true or not, we'll, we'll never know. But it makes a good story. After the revolution, as their manufacturing needs changed, so they were making tobacco and selling tobacco at the shop in the Wall Street area, they looked to the Bronx, which at that point was a very rural area, and they looked to the Bronx River as a site to build a factory. They would harness the, the, the water power from the Bronx River to power this tobacco plant. And where where was that tobacco plant, your audience might be wondering? That's at the New York Botanical Garden, where the New York Botanical Garden stands today. So there's a building in on the grounds called the Old Stone Mill, and it's used by the garden now for events and weddings and parties. And that was the Lorillard Tobacco Company factory. Let's go forward a few decades. In 1866, what was eventually 111 First Street uh, was opened. It was at first a 
screw factory and warehouse. And then, and I believe it's 1867, the Lorillard Company moved there, took over the facilities, and they operated there until 1956. And the area they operated in, that whole, the whole neighborhood around it, was largely warehouses, storage facilities, light industry, and what was then the docks along the Hudson River and the rail yards were right there. So it was tied into this whole industrial network of the metropolitan region, which is no longer there. That area now has been redeveloped. It's housing, office buildings, um, shopping, so on and so forth. Come 1956, Lorillard Company moved to the south and moved to North Carolina, closed all the Jersey City facilities. So that was the end of the relationship between the Lorillard family and New Jersey. And before and, we end that, yep. though, I want to ask, David, yep. what was the relationship like between the Lorillard family uh, and its Jersey City employees? Oh, so that's an interesting story, too, that um, it was almost a very paternal relationship. So they were the workforce was largely immigrants. So Irish Americans, German Americans, later on, probably Italian Americans, Polish Americans. So one was largely an uneducated workforce. However, being a maybe proactive employer or forward thinking employer, they realized their employees needed to be educated to be better employees. So they offered night classes for adults and for children. It's worth noting that at that time, child labor was legal. And by law, they needed to offer night school to those child employees. <laughs> right. Uh, they also had very rich cultural and educational offerings outside of the school. So there was a, a facility called Borum Hall, which is no longer in existence, where it was a clubhouse and a school for the, for the employees. So they had a library there. They had uh, a lounge where there were games, uh, speeches, talks course education there was night school operated there part of that i think also was to discourage the employees from maybe frequenting local taverns so offering an alternative to what was the taverns were often seen as the working man's schoolhouse or the working man's clubhouse uh, they also offered and i think this is important for everyone to to think about they offered child care to their female employees there was child care and that on was site. really rare right and this is 19th century we don't have that today right so they also offered, uh, and again, this is, let's put this in the context. This is before the New Deal. This is before the Great Society in the 60s. So that this is before there was Social Security, uh, before there were uh, large, labor unions were pretty weak at this time. So this is the 19th century, uh, before disability insurance. So before we have the social safety net that we have today, uh, this company offered pensions to some degree to employees. They had... Uh, doctors that would come on site, health uh, offer them checkups. For the time, it was a, a, a very progressive em employer, if you'd like to call it that. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon, talking with author David J. Goodwin. His book, Left Bank of the Hudson, Jersey City and the Artist of 111 First Street, tells the story of a former New Jersey warehouse turned artist colony and the battle over art and development. David, describe yeah. what, you know, Jersey City and the area around 111 First Street looked like at this time. Oh, sure. In the 1900s, Jersey City was a center of uh, industry, shipping, and rail. And that is what built the Jersey City of the early 20th century, in late 19th century, early 20th century. So along the 
the waterfront. So for your listeners that don't know where Jersey City is, again, Jersey City is right across the river from Manhattan. And I like to joke that it's actually closer to many parts of New York than, say, Brooklyn, Queens, or the Bronx. And I work in New York City. And uh, for anyone who's in the uh, anyone who's listening that lives in New Jersey that works in New York, I'm sure they're asked many times, like, "Oh, what's the weather like in New Jersey?" Or what, <laughs> what, as if we're in some faraway land. Right. Um, but you're talking to a Jersey girl. Right. So right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, but uh, that area in, in of Jersey City in the late 19th century was an industrial area. So we're thinking. Uh, along right around right along the waterfront there would have been y- rail yards um, cattle yards um, slaughterhouses f- uh, small industrial factories so in addition to Lorillard you had um, you had Atlantic and Pacific grocery store chain had warehouses there you had um, soap manufacturing there there uh, Colgate their main facilities were on the Jersey City waterfront at that time. Um, other companies, they were large cold storage facilities. So this is an era before refrigeration. So if you, if a company shipped in produce, um, dairy products, they would store on a cold storage site, basically like a big ice house. But at Jersey City was a, a manufacturing hub and also a shipping hub. And I think the shipping might be more important to the identity and geography of Jersey City because again, in the 19th century, we had large immigration in the United States, late 19th century, early 20th century. And those immigrants would, would land in Ellis Island. They would be processed. Uh, presumably, they would pass uh, ins- pass the inspection that the government inspectors, medical inspectors, and uh, police and whatnot uh, subjected them to. And then they would either go into New York City. They would ride a ferry into New York City. But if they were going inland, so elsewhere in the United States they would take a ferry to Jersey City or Hoboken and then board a train that would take them anywhere in the continental United States because in the late 19th century, there was no direct rail service in Manhattan. It was only once Penn Station was constructed that New York had direct rail service to the United States at large. So Jersey City was really the doorway to the United States for generations of Americans. And so when I was promoting this book in 2017, early 2018, uh, wherever I went, I invariably met someone that either they grew up in Jersey City or they knew someone who grew up in Jersey City or they had uh, a grandmother or a father or a cousin that had lived there or still lived there. So it's it's in many ways a, a smaller version of New York, if you want to look at that way, where New York, is, you know, we see New York as the doorway to the United States or where many immigrants come to to learn how to be Americans and then make their home in our country. And we don't cities. hear, and we don't hear about that a lot. That, that no. New Jersey was significant when right. it came to immigration, uh, immigration. and continues yeah. to be. I mean, right. if you go through, um, I mean, we're deviating off my expertise, <laughs> but I mean, which is fine. But if you go into Newark today, Patterson today, Passaic County, New Jersey today, uh, those are huge Im- immigration hubs. Yeah. Um, Fort Lee, New Jersey, it has a huge Asian population, um, and I, you know, some people presented to me that if you really want to see what uh, you know, the emerging United States is, you would look to New Jersey, not necessarily even New York, because it's, it's more affordable, for one thing. And there's still many, I guess we, call, we would call them ethnic enclaves uh, or um, immigrant enclaves thriving, but there may be entire townships where it's majority of the township is one group or another. So it's really a fascinating sort of um, 
collage, if you will. <laughs> and and for for those of us who are trying to get a, 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 a image of what this warehouse, because it was a pretty big yeah. warehouse at 111 First yes. Street. Can you sort of describe maybe what the warehouse yeah, looked so like? Yeah, so the warehouse was roughly 200,000 200, square feet. So, um, and... In and my, for those of us who aren't good at math, no, I don't know what two hundred thousand square feet is. Kind of give. I'm going to. I'm going to present a, <laughs> what I think is a, a decent visual, maybe comparison. So in my book, I have a quite a few images, but there's an image of the site once it was torn down, and the community the community was torn out, the building was torn down, and you see a massive empty city block, and on the right hand side there were about three or four other warehouses, so. 111 First Street was larger than three or four normal size warehouses. It was also four to five stories. It was designed in uh, the, the Greek Revival architectural style, which was popular in the late 19th century. It had sub-buildings within uh, the main building. There was a courtyard, and there were sub-buildings, there were gangways, there was a central chimney that was an architectural feature that many of the artists who lived and worked there remember. And also later on, when the artists were forced from the building, local preservationists fought to save the building. And that was one of the features they point to as well, was there's this chimney that sort of defines the building, helps define the landscape of the area uh, surrounding it. And we keep calling it 111 First yes. Street, but is there another name for it? Does it have another name? I mean, technically, it was the P. Lorillard Tobacco Company Warehouse. That okay. was, And that name was on the building until its last days, which, again, I think is a testament to the importance of that family and the importance of that company to the, the regional history of Jersey City and the larger New York area, which I think also as evidence as why the building should have been preserved, that it's not only the, the building wasn't just important because it looked nice or artists at one point lived and worked there. It was important because it helped tell the story of, of this region we're sitting in right now, where you had a company that started in lower Manhattan, moved to the Bronx, and then moved its manufacturing cities, facilities excuse me, to New Jersey. And also, again, the, their original, um, well, their second manufacturing plant in the Bronx is now part of the New York Botanical Garden. And it's also worth noting that two of the surviving sisters in the Lorillard family in the late, I want to say the late 19th century, deeded their property to New York City, which became the Botanical Garden. So the Botanical Garden wouldn't exist today. So we're sitting you know, not too far from the New York Botanical Garden. That wouldn't exist today if it wasn't for this company and the family and that family. owned it. And in the Botanical Garden, there's the Thane Family Forest, which is an old-growth forest, and that was preserved largely by the family. So if they hadn't maintained that estate and deeded it to New York City, uh, the whole region wouldn't have that, that great treasure today. Uh, so David J. Goodwin, in your book, Left Bank of the Hudson, you say uh, that documents of ownership of 111 First Street became kind of murky mm -hmm. from the time the Lorillard family no longer owned the building until like the 1980s when mm -hmm. artists started to move in. So what can you tell me about the time period between 1959 and the 1980s? Sure. So this is really the low point for Jersey City and the low point for the area around 111 First Street. So this is, um, we had deindustrialization going on in Jersey City. We had um, flight of the middle class, you know, moving to the suburbs. So the area, be, which was the engine that 
spurred the growth of Jersey City through manufacturing, through transportation, through storage, through rail, went into a state of deep decline. So 111 First Street, some of the surrounding buildings, if they weren't vacant, became underutilized. And what was going on in 111 First Street in that time period? It's a little unclear. I, I went through business directories to find out what was there, and it was a mixture of... Um, you know, there were print shops, there were there were some storage facilities there, there were some businesses that could be pretty much anything, and they were like novelty companies, they were called. So, and how much of the floor space was being used, I, I, I could never really uncover. And part of the challenge is that what this, the records the city may have, if you went to City Hall, would be the tax records. So I'd be able to see who owned the building, but the owner may be subleasing floors, even individual units. So you would never really have an idea of the whole picture. But going through old city directories, I was able to get uh, a rough idea. As I said, there, was, there were print shops. There were some small industrial um, operations there. There were some shipping companies. But the area was on a decline. The area was on a steep decline. So mm -hmm. in the 19th century and the 20th century, you had, I mean, you had Lorillard there. You had the Atlantic and Pacific Company. You had other lesser-known um, industrial and business operations operating out of there. But the area was in deep decline. So in especially the rail yards. So the rail yards, um, this was basically the death of uh, the golden age of American rail. So on the waterfronts of Jersey City, you had the Erie Railroad, you had the New Jersey Central Railroad, you had Pennsylvania Railroad. One by one, all those companies went out of business. So you had um, really a landscape of abandoned rail yards, of, of uh, docks rotting into the Hudson River, you know, whatever sort of post-apocalyptic scenario you want to paint in your in your, your imagination, that was probably what was going on. It, it's um, the movie Sid and Nancy uh, with uh, Sid Vicious. Sid Vicious. That that was actually filmed on the Jersey City waterfront. That scene where there's like I, they're at some I don't know if it's a bar, tavern or a bar, or a diner, and there's just something burning on the the waterfront. That's Jersey City. Uh, so it was. Um, it wasn't uh, the best place. <laughs> but what's bad for yeah. manufacturing turned out to be good for the arts community. Yes. So right. when and why did artists begin moving into this well, area and how? So, so, so that's, that's a good story, too. And I think that ties into what was going on in the entire New York region. So in the late 80s, um, 1987, 1988 is when the first artist moved into 111 First Street. And, what was, and it's important, to, I think, for all of us to remember what was going on in the larger region at that time. So... In the late 1980s, you know, New York, just as many cities, we were talking about the decline of Jersey City, but New York had had a rough, pretty rough time in the 1970s. Not as rough time in the 1980s, but by the late 80s, things were starting to, you know, turn the corner in New York. And artists uh, who had been working in the Soho neighborhood or had been working in the East Village were finding themselves priced out. They couldn't find studio space. They couldn't find apartments. And they began looking across the East River to Brooklyn and across the Hudson River to Jersey City. And 111 First Street began, the ownership of 111 First Street began marketing itself to artists as an art space. And I found a Village Voice ad uh, marketed, you know, a full-page ad marketing this building exclusively to art space, touting uh, how affordable it was, touting the connection to the PATH train, which for those who don't know, it's a subway that connects New York and Jersey City and Newark, New Jersey. Uh, touting 
how close it was to Manhattan, touting uh, large, spacious studios. Uh, David, and who was the one who was who was saying, "Hey, come on over to Jersey oh, City, so, you artists." So the uh, that would have been the owner at that time. At the time when artists were being um, courted to move to One Eleven First Street, the building was being uh, was owned and operated by a gentleman by Stephen Romer, and the building. Again, the ownership and the financing is a little difficult to untangle, and I think I was able to do it. But if someone in the audience has a fact that I'm unaware of, I would love to know it. Uh, Stephen Romer owned and operated the building, and then it later was transferred to an entity uh, by the name of New Gold Equities, which ha its name has changed over the last 20 years. Now, today, it's, it's called BLDG Management. But that was the New Gold Equities was the company that owned 111 for the majority of its life. And in the 80s and through the 90s, this was being marketed to artists um, directly. And many of the artists I interviewed mentioned first coming to this building and just being amazed at how, how open it was, that you could see the Hudson River from their window, that you could hear foghorns from the tugboats along the Hudson River at night, that it was almost this enchanted space, but it was also very quiet because at that point no one lived in the area, no one worked in the area. And is that one of the reasons why it was marketed to artists to come over? Because it wasn't really a utilized space? It wasn't utilized space. So it was a way to, to I guess, reactivate the space. And l later, uh, so we're moving forward to the mid-90s, the, the, city, the city of Jersey City began to see artists as one, artists and creative industries or creative occupations as one way to reignite Jersey City as a whole. So one way to mix the economy. So the, the city at large, I think, realized that industry wasn't coming back. And manufacturing comes back. That chapter um, in Jersey City's life was over. So what's, what's the future for Jersey City? What's the future for the large metropolitan area? And one, one way forward was looking to arts, looking to artists as a way to liven up the economy, but also to make the space attractive. So what... Um, What's one thing artists do do well is they're communicators, um, and people enjoy consuming what they create, whether that's plays, whether that's paintings, whether that's music, and uh, that was a way one to reactivate the building, but also the entire, uh, or at least it's not the entire city, but the area around the building. So in 1996, the city actually passed a zoning ordinance known as Waldo, as the work artists live district overlay, which mandated, one, that all the buildings in the area uh, where 111 was situated would follow the, the density and the height of the surrounding buildings, the current buildings. So this would be four to five stories. They would also all more or less resemble historic warehouses. One, that a certain percentage of housing uh, that was created would be set aside for artists and it would be affordable housing. Also, a certain percentage of uh, business spaces would be related to arts-related businesses. So in the 90s, what you had is really a concerted effort by the city, um, by the owner of 111 First Street, and by other building owners in the area of 111 First Street, which they were calling Waldo at that time, a name that didn't stick, to, to market the area to what we would today call the creative class or to artists and um, people that enjoy art. And that seemed to be actually humming along well, and everyone you know, seemed to be happy with it. So, however, 
Uh, around 2001, the dynamic shifted between the owner of 111 First Street and the artists. And what exactly changed that? There are many inputs, and none of which you can really say, that, aha, that's, that's the moment. But there was definitely some safety issues in the building. Uh, there was a criminal element operating the building. So as, I, you know, as we discussed, the neighborhood was a bit down at the heels. And there was it was the neighborhood safe, David? I, I, you know, I don't think it was dangerous in the sense that if you're walking around at night, you, you had to look over your shoulder. But there was in the building, I know in the building at 111th First Street, there was an organized crime element. There was um, drug dealing going on. There was some prostitution going on. So I apologize for <laughs> bringing that up to some of your listeners. Uh, and that was going on largely, if not with the approval of the building management, with definitely um, a wink and a nod. And but at a certain point, uh, a, a minor actress who was actually Tony Soprano's maid in Sopranos was beat pretty violently in the building. So there was a backstory to that that her her either her friend or her boyfriend was tailing or following one of the organized crime affiliates throughout the building. He was fairly abruptly warned to stop that by by being tossed down several flights of stairs. And he purely didn't get the message. And then he and uh, this actress uh, somehow were involved in an altercation with the organized crime uh, individuals. And they were both tossed down the stairs. And <laughs> what that brought to the building was unwanted attention from right. the police, from the city. So the, the management in the building were two separate entities. The owner owned the property, but someone else was managing it. They could no longer ignore what was going on in the building, and, and part of that was that there were artists living there illegally, and that's maybe something I should have mentioned at the, build, at the beginning, that 111 First Street was always zoned as uh, commercial space, not residential space. However, many, if not most, of the artists that were operating the building were living there. And while working there, while working but there, still living which there. Which is not uncommon. Right. And you know, the owner, the management certainly knew, the owner certainly knew, the city certainly knew, but it was sort of a situation where, you know, don't ask, don't tell, or as, you know, as long as I don't know, I don't have to act upon it. But once media began sniffing around after uh, this altercation between the actress and the the mafia, right, <laughs> um, couldn't be ignored anymore. They, they couldn't be ignored anymore. So all of a sudden, uh, you know, fire inspectors being hand coming in, finding not surprisingly the building wasn't up to code. Um, the building, again, wasn't zoned for residential habitation. And, you know, if they're wondering, why are people living here? You know, um, also, the real estate market began to change. So this, again, this is around 2001. So what happened, in, you know, for, for 2001, we had 9-11. And one result of 9-11 was um, the financial industry in New York began looking outside of Manhattan for to rent office space. They realized having everything in one centralized location just... It, one, it wasn't uh, sound from a, just a pure safety standpoint or a, a really a national security standpoint. But also just from a business standpoint, you don't have maybe the natural redundancies you might want to have. And, or, and just from a cost-effective standpoint that real estate is cheaper in New Jersey or Connecticut. And many um, banking and financial and um, I guess just generic office uh, uh, businesses began looking to Jersey City as an option. And 
also, and here you have these warehouses exactly. that you know don't have a lot going on right. for them, and it's so. they can reshape it how they will mm-hmm. or how they wish. And also, uh, again, we have more people looking to Jersey City to live. So again, um, I mean, I talked about how artists were looking to Brooklyn, and so were everyday residents in New York. So people that um, had come to New York and realized they couldn't form Manhattan. I mean, that's what sort of regenerated Brooklyn, and that's what has regenerated Jersey City is people that either from the New York area originally or from New Jersey originally or from somewhere else in the United States or, or the world that are looking for somewhere affordable to live. David, you and, know how we sort of know yeah. now that, you know, artists create these, yes. these, these you know, move in, artists move into mm-hmm. these neighborhoods. They basically build these neighborhoods mm-hmm. up. Then they're pushed out uh, so that people who have more money are drawn to these mm-hmm. areas. Do you think that that was premeditated way back then or... Did that develop later on, the whole idea of gentrification? I, I think that developed later. Yeah. I mean, I think um, the idea of artists, I mean, artists now we see as sort of the shock troops of g- gentrification. And I think that might be a mischaracterization. I think I think artists um, are maligned, really, in that sort of conversation. And I mean, one reason I think why do people point to artists as the instruments of the first wave of gentrification is one, they, they stand out. Artists look different kind of weird to keep to themselves i mean you know when someone you suspect is an artist moves into your neighborhood right tune in next week for part two of my conversation with david j goodwin about his book left bank of the hudson jersey city and the artist of 111 first street it's out now by fordham press we'll discuss more on how the warehouse turned artist colony set off a battle over art and development You've been listening to Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon.